Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. dedicated to Henry Farmer. In the year of the primal form, the dawn of terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and horse, man was the lord of the earth. He made him an old skin from the heart of a holy tree. He compassed the earth. Good morning, Vietnam. Well, at least according to the internal statistics of my Spotify podcast algorithm or whatever you want to call it yes i've said the word algorithm already it states clearly that i have more than one listener in vietnam so if you're in vietnam well hello to you and hello to the rest of you i'm alan averill this is agitators anonymous episode 129 if you want to support the show you can do it over at patreon.com slash alan averill all sorts of interesting things demos um, conversations extra bonus podcasts that kind of thing The show is sponsored by MetalBlade.com in North America, which includes that Canada. Um, You can get 10% off your order if you use the promo code ALAN and various other things and new um, sponsors on the way. All that kind of thing. There's going to be a few links underneath the description. You can follow them if you wish. Um, I had a couple of things I was going to talk about today. Some of you were asking me, where has the Tuesday episode gone? Well, I kind of felt like maybe I'd overdone the arsenic. They say that if you take a little bit of arsenic every day, you can develop an immunity. But I kind of felt maybe two, um, two, shall we say, matches, two boxing matches going. Maybe a couple less rounds on the Tuesday with me was maybe becoming a bit too much. So I took a little bit of a step off the pedal for that one you know pedal to the metal never ever false metal etc if you can tell me what album that quote is from or what song that lyric is from you might win a prize and that prize might just be um just the simple glory of knowing something that maybe probably not many other people would recognize in this podcast anyway what the hell am i talking about i was a couple of things i was going to talk about today one was something some stuff about jordan peterson but then i went meh now nah, he's a bit annoying lately and probably that podcast would just be a bit annoying then there was a brilliant quote from louis ck one of my favorite comedians 
Um, and I might get to that in the podcast because what he what he said was kind of like blew my mind a little bit. Um, and maybe I'll mention it at the end and you can see if it blows your mind as well. But maybe we'll leave that for next week. And what I'm going to do is first off, by way of a little bit of housekeeping, is say that tomorrow night Promodio plays in Bucharest in Romania and with all sorts of great bands like Dordorech and uh, Varathron and all that kind of thing. And on Saturday we play in Sofia in Bulgaria. Um, so if you are around in either of those places and somehow are not aware of that, well then, get yourself down there. The following week, um, Promodio plays um, in Rennes, and that is the and that is the 21st and 22nd with all sorts of bands like Fenn and Aggressor. Um, and it's a double header. We're playing two nights and two different sets. So if you're in the northwest of France and want to head over to Rennes, well, yeah, you can figure out the details. And the following weekend, the heavy Hamburg Halloween special is going to be something really cool. We're playing with Night Demon, Portrait, Witch Hazel, Psycho Punch, etc., etc. It's in the Markthal in Hamburg, and tickets are still available. That is on the 28th. But seeing as, in a very kind of strange turn of events, um, this weekend we're playing, I'm not quite a complete parallel, but 22 years ago, um, Promodio went to play in Bulgaria and Romania. And so what I'm going to do is going to make this podcast a little bit of a, a reminisce, a little bit of a nostalgia, um, a look back at that experience. I don't think I've talked about it on the podcast before. It was a pretty crazy experience and really pretty fascinating. And I'm going to talk about that and the differences between now and then and how um, it all looked to a bunch of five reprobates from um, Ireland when they arrived in that Bulgaria and that Romania. Um, and so the, this podcast is just going to be a little bit of a look back at that and how I think that maybe the countries have changed and how, I mean, more specifically, um, well, there's many things that are specific about this whole, um, the context of this podcast, but Eastern Europe was still a kind of mystery. I mean, in 2000, I think, when we went to play, it was either 2000 or 2001 to, we went to play. We were a replacement. I'm not sure for whom. It, the rumor is it was Satyricon, but I can't have been correct because Satyricon, I think, were far too big. But the gigs were organized by Negru from Negur Bunjit. Um, rest in peace or rest in power, however they say it. A band who I suppose we had felt we had some kind of spiritual links to in relation to being one of the OGs, one of the originals of that sort of early 90s pagan black metal scene, or at least black metal bands that were um, adopting elements of their own culture, of their own uh, history, of their own folklore into the music, which we were doing with Imram in 93, 94. And, um, you know, we were all doing it in a little bit of a different way, but there was certainly a group of bands who were, you know, um, let's say on the periphery of the black metal scene. Um, not orthodox black metal, I would never say that, but they certainly were part of it, but had a little, you know, kind of sidestepped into the shadow a little bit. And that shadow was, as I said, a sort of reverence for your own um, culture, mythology, history, and all that kind of stuff. So Nagura Bunjit were kind of like um, kindred spirits in some way that we had not met before. And um, it, it's quite incredible because people don't really realize that sort of Ryanair broke, the, um, broke that nut open over, you want to say, crack that nut and that they broke the stranglehold that the old um, airlines had on uh, air travel, which I think is starting to happen again at the moment. 
But to, to fly somewhere like in Eastern Europe, even in 2000, because don't forget, that's only 10 years really from the fall of communism. Um, and now we're 22 years from 2000, of course. And, um, you know, people still say to me, oh, have you heard that album from 2002? And I go, no, I don't like any of the new creator albums, etc., etc. You know exactly what I mean when I say that. Um, but the cost of flying us there from like Dub- to, to go from Dublin to Sofia in 2000 and when you looked at the map I'd have, I'd travelled to Greece and a few other places but Sofia just seemed very exotic very different for us and um, you know it really was quite um, quite new and quite interesting quite strange and I think even in the 1990s a couple of bands had played in Romania Anathema if I'm not incorrect um, had played some very big gigs in Romania in the 90s but still Romania was kind of like um uh you know, it was an undiscovered country when it comes to metal. And we, we weren't even playing in Bucharest. We were playing in Timisoara, uh, which is where actually the revolution, um, as I understood it, began. And, you know, like memories of Romania in our heads, really. Um, and this is before, as I said, you know, Ryanair had sort of cracked the nut and that we'd met people in Dublin, of course, in the 2000s who had emigrated from Romania to Ireland to try and earn some money. I mean, the Celtic Tiger was booming. Ireland was doing very well. And, um, you know, lots of people from Eastern Europe were coming into into Ireland. We met many great people from Romania at this time um, who'd come over to uh, Ireland. And then, of course, there were lots of misconceptions about people from those countries, which we um, were happy to confound and learn and discover ourselves by visiting these countries, what amazing places they were. Um, It should go without saying... But, you know, we had watched the uh, um, the trial and execution of Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu um, on the TV. I mean, don't forget, they were literally court-martialed um, and the main charge as, as genocide of murdering, I think, over 60,000 people. And the revolutions had started in Timisoara and there we f- were. And the cold breath of history, and I mean that quite literally as it was freezing cold when we were playing in Timisoara, were, um, had its icy hand on your shoulder as you walked the streets of Timisoara. And those kind of things were very important to your early steps. I was always very fascinated by going to a new country. And um, Bulgaria and Romania in those moments seemed um, very, very otherworldly. Not many bands have played yet in Romania, certainly I would say we must have been one of the first foreign bands to come and play um as you know, countries take a while to catch up once the uh, the wall comes down and, um, and foreign bands are able to go over and play. No, I can't lay claim to playing in those places in the 90s, but certainly in the early 2000s, it was still quite fresh. And like I said, the um, the revolution, for example, in um, Romania, we'd watched it on the TV. We'd watched um, the odious Nikolai and Elena being uh, shot on a rooftop as they, um, if I'm not incorrect, as they tried to... Exp- uh, escape on a helicopter or maybe I'm mixing those two things up probably there'll be some things in this story that are mixed up because of don't forget it's 22 years ago and I am a man of advancing years and don't always I'm not always in full control of my um all of my mental capacities I know that sounds difficult to believe but so we landed in uh in 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 Sofia and um we played in 2000 and it was uh, my memories of that are, uh, well, I have many, 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 many memories of that, and we'll try and go through them and <laughs> uh, put together a podcast. But we played in some sort of 
Uh, it was like a basketball hall, which led me to believe that it surely couldn't have been made for us because I guess there were three or four hundred people there, maybe. But the um, the whole space was way, way too big. We'd heard that maybe Sodom had played there and I think not many other bands. But the idea that we would somehow be able to um, fill that space was, um, you know, was a little bit was a little bit of a pipe dream as far as the organizers were concerned. But there we were um, sitting in this um, small uh, empty room in the backstage in the bowels of some um, of this what was like a kind of small basketball ha- hall with people outside in the kind of courtyard uh, smashing shit up breaking stuff up um, as we were told sort of angrily by there was a lot of security around back then um, and you know which made you always wonder whenever you go into a venue in a a country that has like 10, 15, 20 security guards, you're kind of thinking to yourself, okay, there's something strange is happening. Somebody's on the make here. Um, there's some sort of mafia type thing rolling along the corridors. But got this knock on the door and we were, we'd been, you know, kind of like observing the chaos outside as people who were unable to afford the, I guess the four or five euro, whatever it was to come in and see us, were busy smashing stuff. People were outside drinking vodka. I mean, look, this is the cliche that goes, but sure enough, there we were looking out the window and um, handing bottles of vodka in and out the window to people um, hanging out, talking to people in the crowd, trying to figure out a way of trying to get people in who couldn't afford it, etc., etc. You know, the, the uh, humanitarian Irish as we are, well, no, Known as part of our um, cliche, of course, but there's knock on the door, and this big fat butcher with a bloody apron um, was standing at the door, and he says, "You looking for blood?" And I had sort of said in a kind of pithy kind of way, oh, "I wouldn't mind some blood. You know, we're pretty black metal. Maybe we get some blood." Little did I realize, an actual butcher would knock on the door with a huge big plastic bottle of warm animal blood, which was. Um, one of the most, <laughs> like if you can imagine destruction, the Mad Butcher 12-inch, that's kind of what it was like. This huge dude who'd obviously just walked from the butcher across and handed me a warm vial of um, indeterminate animal blood, which you can find, um, I think, I sort of um, kind of daubed on my face and my arms a little bit. I don't, I don't think I went, I didn't do a full Impale Nazarene 1994 with it or a full Gigi Allen with it or whatever. I think even I was a little bit, a uh, little bit too shocked to kind of do that. And I do remember the van being searched, but I'll get into that. Um, but one of the cops pulling out this warm a bottle of blood later that evening or this bottle of blood the next day going, what the fuck is this? Because there was kind of lots of questions that were coming into the organizers. Um, I'm kind of skipping ahead of myself, but the idea that were these, were these guys Satanists? Were these guys devil worshippers? And then, of course, you find a big bottle of animal blood in the back of the van. But anyway, I digress. And um, it was just a very um, strange, unusual feeling, but definitely as somebody who's an avid student of history and a reader of books and really fascinated by the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of communism and all that kind of stuff. And the idea that here we were and it wasn't that far removed, you know, nine, ten years. Um, Now, of course, the um, the leader of Bulgaria was a, a Todor Hristov Zhivkov. Um, who would, who was um, I'm looking at Wikipedia here because I, I'm not I know I hadn't known a lot about him. Bulgarian communist state statesman served as de facto leader of the People's Republic of Bulgaria from 1954 until 1989, um, and that's when he resigned. Um, he remained in the position for 35 years. Now the reason you probably don't know his name is because 
it would, by all accounts, and people can correct me in the comments, and I'm sure I'll meet some people who will correct me, by all accounts, his rule was not as bloody and iron-fisted as many others in the region. There are many other names, whether it's um, Tito himself or, you know, many other rulers from that era who have a much more fearsome reputation. But um, the Bulgarian um, communist rule seems to have gone more quietly into the night, shall we say, than Ceausescu. And if anybody's been to Bucharest and seen the palace the Ceausescu's built for themselves, um, which is like literally, it's one of the most ostentatious, insane buildings you've ever seen in your entire life. And how people in the poorest areas of Bucharest must have thought when they cycled by or whatever, or got driven by in their trabants and seen this incredible building as, um, a, you know, this sort of opulent, um, supremely decadent symbol of wealth while their um, country, you know, labored under such poverty. It, it, the mind boggles if you're in Bucharest, and um, which is a beautiful city, by the way, and one of the most fascinating cities in that it has incredibly old buildings which are sort of bookended right up to these old communist um, tower blocks, which is a little bit different to some other eastern block um, capitals with this sort of kind of faded glory that I really, really love. Um, yeah, I, I was a fan, uh, you know, a really avid historian um, and a f- so curious about all these countries you wanted to walk every street that you got to and I still feel the same way thankfully my um like I said I'm doing this podcast before going to get the plane and fly to um Bucharest and my appetite for trying to um, walk along a street I haven't yet um hasn't faded that much although it depends on how much sleep I've got anyway that's another story but um there we played in Sofia and then afterwards went to some bar um, where they, there's a strange custom of having the band sit in the middle of the bar under bright lights and give us free food. I'm not a man who likes eating in public, as anybody who knows me well will know this. I'm not a man who likes dining al fresco. Not my style, I'm afraid. Um, and how we all quietly and uncomfortably shifted and disappeared off into the dark um, shadows of the pub because everybody was just standing around looking at us, which was kind of uncomfortable, at least as I remember it. Um, like I said before on the podcast, Irish people look best in the dark. Um, and that um, was the same then as it is now. Um, and the whole experience was kind of surreal. Of course, Nagur Bunjit there, who we made friends with over the years. And the idea that, you know, tomorrow we'll play with Dorderech, who are the de- sort of um, had descendants of half of that band from back then. Um, it's still something special to meet all the old faces um, and exchange, you know, the nods and the looks of like, all right, when you know uh, somebody else has been in the trenches for 25 or 30 years and are still going and, and haven't quite given in to the, um, the passing of time or the embracing of apathy instead of making music, it's still quite an amazing thing. However, anyway, so there we are walking around the streets of Sofia. I remember going to some uh, bootleg CD stall um, in the in the street and being, you know, like, oh my God, they have an Interglory ride, hail to England, um, double disc, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, of course, I would be searching for vinyls, but back then, just the idea that you could just buy all these um, bootleg CDs, and sure enough, we I think pretty sure we found a bootleg primordial. Um, CD of the first two albums in Ram and Journey's End which I have somewhere which I was pretty fascinated by or there were cassette versions of Journey's End and that kind of thing Um, 
which was just so cool to be able to find them on the street somewhere. But just also the 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 so I guess a sort of exotic quality of going somewhere where the um, the alphabet on ads was different, that kind of stuff. Anyway, so we played our gig in um, Sophie. If you can remember some of the other bands that played, you should let me know in the comments. I'm, my memory is a bit hazy on that. But there we were, packed up the van, disappeared to some pub where we all kind of disappeared out of the limelight in the middle of it, which was never really um, something I think we were particularly comfortable with. And the next morning, um, arriving down to the little van. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In Sofia, um, this, this is kind of where the story gets, uh, I think, quite, um, you know, in turns hilarious and in turns really kind of quite dark. Um, I arrived in the van to find Negru and Kiron discussing um, the difference in farming methods between Romania and Ireland. I mean, super exciting conversation, riveting rock and roll stories. Nope, it was just um, agrarian um, cultural movements within those two countries. And we were in this little van and we had this sort of... Um, no word of a lie. We had this amazing driver who'd showed up, shown up in a suit, in a kind of, um, a bit like, I'm going to say, Borat, I suppose because the first thing that comes to mind for most Western people, but a Borat-style suit with a moustache and sort of curly hair. Uh, and he was a very friendly guy, you know, uh, who didn't really speak much English, but okay, okay. Um, and he was dressed up in his, uh, in his suit to drive us from Sofia to Timisoara. Um, and on that journey, you have to go through the corner of Belgrade. At least you should go through the corner of um, Serbia. And what you have to do very often in some of these countries is you go through two um, border checkpoints in a row. So like if you're going from Turkey, for example, into Bulgaria, driving across, um, you stop at the Turkish side and then you've got a kind of little no man's land and then the Bulgarian side. It can take literally hours. And especially if, what happened as uh, happened in those days is that 
they would stop a van with a bunch of bands and grill them for hours and they would take out every instrument which they did on the Serbian border um, and put it all on the ground in the baking sun and ask for, um, I suppose it would be the equivalent of what's called a carnet or carnet, which is a list of your equipment. Of course, we didn't know. You realise you had to have. And they want to know the value of every single instrument. And we, of course, thought, being Irish, like, OK, so they're pegging everything and they're going to some um, somebody's going to head us off at the next maybe like two kilometers away and rob us because they've rang ahead to say, yeah, bunch of lads coming up with a few guitars. Yeah, perfect. Rob them at the next petrol station, et cetera, et cetera. That's just kind of lifting if you've grown up in Ireland. That's kind of what you think about things. So we weren't like how we say we weren't um, sort of um, green Swedes, as you might say. We were quite, um, because we'd grown up in a country that had been a little bit hairy, um, had been poor, had been a little bit dicey on the streets every now and again. We were wise, um, or at least to some of the um, some of the things that were going on, but we still weren't ready for armed military at the border. And our Borat driver, um, great dude, he had one cassette, and that was um, Laundry Service by... By Shakira, um, you're one from Colombia, uh, in my breasts are small and humble or whatever it is. And he, all he did was just play the same cassette over and over and over again. So the rather surreal um, view of watching him remonstrating with um, border guards um, replete with guns and all that kind of stuff while laundry service just played over and over and over again in the background um, was pretty fucking surreal to say the least. But... What happened then is something really, really pretty crazy, which I guess is a really particular example of how um, things can be in that area of the world. But the Serbian uh, border guards, as I remember, and now somebody may correct me in the comments, I'm not sure who that would be, but um, I've looked at the map to make sure this corroborates my story, and I can see that this does make sense. Um, there was a deal struck. They were not going to let us through on except with the exception of that we bring three soldiers with us to Belgrade. You can, If you look on the map, you can see that you would drive to Belgrade and then across into Timisoara. They're pretty near. Um, and our Borat driver and our tour manager of the, of the time um, didn't really have a choice because they weren't going to let us through. And they were just, oh, they were just going to keep us there for hours and hours and hours. And I wasn't really paying attention when I was sort of like looking out the window, blah, blah, blah. And the next thing I noticed was a dude just sit beside me in um, fatigues, in like com in, in um, camouflage. And he had his hand, you know, they had guns with them and just sat down beside me. And I could just see tattoos on his wrist, you know, sort of right wing tattoos. I suppose that's the cliche, unfortunately, um, of, you know, people in the Serbian military. Nevertheless, it's my story. Tell your own story. Um, and I still had long hair at the time and I was just sitting there and the whole rest of the band had disappeared down the back of this little van. So I got to sit beside these two guys in silence, literally while the dude held his gun, um, which was sort of right, kind of like a little bit too close to my face. And he just says, oh, where, where, where are you from? Um, Ireland, Ireland. Oh, you know, they don't know. People don't know that much about Ireland until you say IRA. IRA, okay. This is the IRA in Ireland and, you know, republicanism and nationalism. Um, the Irish are always viewed as the underdogs and we haven't really fucked anyone over or oppressed anyone. But these soldiers, it took a long time to, for that to thaw. 
they were basically like American, English. And we're like, no. And then a guy called me, you are a hippie, hippie band. And we're like, no, we're not a hippie band because we had still had long hair. And these dudes were really not having it.com. And we got out somewhere in some sort of like ruined kind of, as my memory is a bit hazy with this, but some sort of slightly uh, ruined, um, how can we say, the kind of edge of some town. And they were like, look, bomb, bombed by United Nations, bombed by you guys. And I was like, well, this is not us. <laughs> we are not those guys. We are from Ireland. And I, this is before mobile phones where you could show somebody a map or anything like this. Um, and, you know, you don't want to kind of pull out your passport for somebody to walk off with your passport, which is can happen. It happened to me in Transnistria, the um, self-declared communist republic between Moldova and Ukraine. Dudes just walked off with my passport with machine guns and you have to stand there like an idiot until someone eventually comes over and goes, where the fuck are you from? Where are you from? And you go, Ireland. And they go, oh, OK, they don't have a problem with the Irish. And eventually we managed to get through to these guys, but they were like, you know, bombed by United Nations. This is on you. And like, no, nah, not quite. No, we're not American, etc. George Bush, um, Tony Blair. Oh, actually, well, not George Bush. It would have been Clinton, wouldn't it? Yeah. So there was this big tension. We had to drive these three guys. Eventually, we sort of um, made some kind of peace with them. I think it was when they realized that we weren't hippies, but I don't think we could quite explain to them what black metal or pagan metal was. But either way, we made enough friends that they were like, oh, you will play, you will play tonight in Belgrade. And we were like, um, no, well, no, not really. But uh, and like, OK, where is the venue? Couldn't quite explain that we were going there and then on to another place. Uh, we will come down, bring bring whole of brigade down, etc., etc. And we sort of bluffed and huffed and puffed and made excuses. And um, sort of when we got to Belgrade, got, you know, sort of these three guys got off the got off the van. And we'd done our sort of duty, so to speak. Um, they gave us a little salute and off they went into their, um, well, wherever they were going. And we were allowed to continue our journey to, uh, you know, kind of like northeast, just across the border to Timisoara again. But it gave us all a very great and clear insight. And because and when I look at the map now, I presume we would have driven through what is now as part of the self-declared Republic of uh, Kosovo. Um, I, I just met a man. Um, at exactly at a border crossing going from Turkey to Bulgaria Bulgaria a Kosovan soldier who just happened to be standing in front of me in the queue and we had a big big chat about Kosovo and Kosovo and independence for about an hour um, and like many people from that region um, they're just fascinated that you know and really happy that you know a little bit about their history and he rooted around his bag and gave me a, a gift of a bracelet which I thought was a very kind of touching move um, and of course the, uh, always the hospitality of I, I mean I think this is ubiquitous in that region of if you come to the region you come to my house and blah blah and you exchange your phone number and he's, he's ringing your phone okay you have my number very very uh, this is a really big thing in that area and something I recognise as something similar in Ireland Um uh, note to all Germans, if an Irish person invites you to come and stay in their house, they don't really mean it. Anyway, so we, we, we make our way through kind of like the edge of Serbia with three soldiers in the van. You know, there's mountains. The landscape is beautiful. We stop off in a petrol station, which seems to only house uh, three-legged dogs, I guess, if you like. Dogs, you don't eat them all at one at a time. I don't know, but there was lots of three-legged dogs there. Um, we collect another band on the way. I think the Stone um, from somewhere. Who are still going, and they played with us at the gig in Timisoara, and uh, an, an entire crazy day with enough things within that day um, to take up probably a whole chapter in a book. Write the book, um, you know, 
absolutely crazy, crazy day. And we all got there to Timisoara and I was there like, well, this is where the revolution started against Ceausescu, where tens of thousands of people came out on the street, even more. And the whole thing began to collapse, you know, the weight of the fall of communism. And it happened here. And if you've ever, never not seen um, the, the, you know, uh, Elena and Nikolai being shot, um, you know, at their, their at the end of their trial or parts of their trial, you should watch um, watch that. There's also a four-part documentary called The Fall of Yugoslavia, which is really, really fascinating BBC documentary from the 90s, which has access to all of the main uh, perpetrators, all of the main movers and shakers uh, and tyrants. And it's um, absolutely fascinating and absolutely brilliant. I would recommend that. I might put the link under it somewhere. And sure enough, we arrive in Timisoara, which is a kind of fascinating place, but it was it was really cold and really gloomy. And there were a lot of security at the gig, again, trying to keep people out. They wouldn't play music between the bands, and it was just kind of like this icy silence. Somebody somewhere has a video of us playing. Um, if you have it, please send it to me. I'd like to see it. Um, and we were just in the bowels again of this really strange old, I think in my head I had it as like a communist meeting hall with all different high balconies and um, all these kind of levels looking down on the stage. Maybe, I don't know, 200 people there or something like this. And um, But I just remember being icy cold, really, really cold. And after the gig, we're talking with Negru about... Um, it it had been a really strange. Now we you know after that we we'd done long tours before, but we hadn't quite come this far east. And being really disappointed that somebody had gone off to buy something to eat and come back with a bag of McDonald's for everybody, and we we're like, oh, what what you know we wanted to <laughs> to eat something local, and the uh, this strange sight of this kind of dilapidated old backstage room with all this kind of still iconography and symbolism of um <laughs> of a dictatorship still kind of like everywhere, and then this bag of like cold McDonald's stuff just sitting on the table um, somehow seemed to be uh, striking maybe I'm my young self was reading a little bit more into these things symbolically than maybe my middle-aged self would have done but Timashwara has a very important place in Romanian history and I, and I think in the overall context of um, the public and their right to protest um, which we've seen, you know, being attacked for the last couple of years, um, lots of new laws to stop protest, etc. Um, the idea that people, the people should, you know, can come together to basically oust such a tyrant as Ceausescu is quite incredible. And maybe if you don't know much about Romanian history, go and take a look. Of course, in the years that have passed, the 20 odd years have passed since those two gigs, I've seen both countries develop a lot. I was in both of those countries in the last year or two. And you can certainly see the elements of a technological progression, especially in Bucharest. I love the building around Bucharest. I suppose it's what Western people would balk at and being called gentrification. But for countries like that, the development of infrastructure um, creates opportunity and holds those countries level with um, or more level with, uh, with their Western counterparts. And it's essential to, I think, the economic growth of a country. Um, and for anybody who's considering whether they should go and visit those countries, definitely. Um, Romania, especially the eastern side, up in Transylvania, staggeringly beautiful, wild kind of place and full of um, incredible history. It's got, I think, um, all the myths about, the, you know, the Draculus kind of stuff. Um, super worth exploring all of the castles and all, as I said, Transylvania. Bulgaria is fascinating as well. I was only in Plovdiv, 
um, and went to to an amphitheater to see Solstafir play. And Plovdiv has all of this Roman history, um, like an ancient Roman town. Um, there's so much history in all of these areas that is super worth exploring. But even even the grim Eastern European kind of architecture, the brutalist architecture, I find fascinating, and the sort of decaying sense of um, an empire that once ruled over those countries, even only 20, 30 years ago, I find um, really interesting, even if it is can be a little bit depressing. Um, but those countries have been uh, kind of opened to the world. The idea in, in 2000 that you could go and visit Moldova, which I have ended up now being in three different times, um, was incredible that you would meet a Moldovan working in a bar, for example. Um, I think, sadly, Moldova have lost almost half of their population once their borders uh, were opened. And so now there's literally just old people and very young people. It's quite a sad story. I watched a few documentaries about it. And, and you can see it when you visit there, if you drive through it then in the small towns. Anyway, that's a podcast for another day, I guess. Um, those small small countries, many of their infrastructure was held together, I suppose, by the old um, the old communist infrastructure that never quite got replaced or updated, or the um, the movement, the technological movement that was going to come and supplant that old order, and um, just left some places behind. Um, I guess that's a complex paradox, which maybe I should explore in another podcast, but. The um, it's with great sort of joy, I think, that in the last 20, 25 years, and especially for somebody like Ryanair, I keep always espousing the virtues of Ryanair. Um, but the idea that like you could probably get a Ryanair flight from like um, Dublin to um, you know, a Burgas or something, you know, by the Black Sea, um, in Bulgaria, you know, off season, um, Tuesday to Wednesday, for cheaper than it probably is to get on the train from Dublin to Cork. And all of these places were opened to the world, open to be discovered and uh, to found to have incredible histories and also to understand not just the incredible things from history, but to be able to understand the great pain and hardship um, and um, have a try and have some form of understanding of where these countries have come from in escaping uh, tyranny and authoritarianism. Because like I would say, for many of these countries, the Second World War didn't quite end when it ended because all of the, those countries were just handed to uh, Stalin and the, uh, you know, the Iron Curtain created. And their level, their, you know, the authoritarian rule. Um, okay, so some of Western Europe was rebuilt, etc. There was a different set of problems. But one thing that was important in the West was a sense of um, freedom and liberty. Yeah, you can scoff at that. That's true. And there are many people, I think now on, let's call it whatever, the, the kind of elements of the new left who espouse virtues um, of, uh, you know, communism or whatever you want to say. But I think it's a kind of like picture book communism. I think it's champagne socialism. Um, because if they've ever went and asked a Romanian uh, who was in their 50s or 60s and said, well, how did that, how was Ceausescu for you? Was it champagne socialism? I think you'd get a very, um, <laughs> a very different, real and brutal answer. But you realize when you speak to most people um, who espouse those things that they've never actually visited the Eastern Bloc. But I'm glad to say that um, the 
the ability as a musician to be able to be taken to those places is one of the greatest thrills and the greatest privileges to be able to walk down a street with a local and have them say, well, you know, when you're in Timisoara and they go, well, here is where the revolution started. Here's where people gathered. Here is one flashpoint and another. And the great hope is that the band continues and continues that you can keep adding countries as you go. Um, and hear their stories and discover more about their past. And this particular, um, it was only a weekend, um, but 22 years ago, I think was one of the most, um, it was a very pivotal event in the history of the band. It was where, you know, we'd been on tour in Europe, we'd been to Portugal and Spain and Germany and Italy and Holland and Belgium, but it was one of the first times where we'd been just that little bit further and it really expanded our horizons. And my friends, that is episode 129 of Agitators Anonymous. I'm going to have to cut my rambling short because I've got to go and get a plane to the exact same places I'm talking about. And if you're listening to this in those places, well, I'll see you at the bar. And if not, go and visit them. My friends, Agitators Anonymous, episode 129, over and out. I'm Alan Averill.